0: the award-winning Your Financial Editor Program on
1: 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor Program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast. I am Chris Murray, your host, Thanks so much for being with us this weekend. Appreciate it, as always. Hope things are going well for you and your family. Uh, Nice program for you today. Uh, We're going to be talking about, uh, well, there was a really big energy deal I want to touch on, other interesting top stories, very important economic data. And then joining me in just a little bit, Mr. Desmond Lockman. Um, He is uh, with the um, American Enterprise Institute, a friend of the program, a lot of... uh, Uh, A a lot of experience and background with Mr. Lockman. Um, He was an economic strategist at Solomon Smith Barney. He was a deputy director in the International Monetary Fund's policy development. He's taught at Georgetown University. He's taught at Johns Hopkins University. Um, And uh, he's just a wealth of knowledge, does a lot of really good writing um, and uh, just really good work in general. Uh, research work uh, for American Enterprise Institute and and writes on that extensively. And a couple pieces that he did this past week caught my attention. They were sent to me and uh, just wanted to have him on to talk about the world economy in general. So that's something that we're going to be focusing some time on is the world economy, and uh, and, and then we'll go uh, into some other areas if time permits. So I mentioned about uh, just a massive energy deal, and that was Chevron. They announced on Monday that they reached an agreement to acquire Hess Corporation in an all-stock deal valued at $53 billion. So um, the energy company says the acquisition uh, upgrades and diversifies Chevron's already advantaged portfolio Um, and actually the, the statement from Chevron was talking about the stay broke block in Guana Um, It's an extraordinary asset with industry-leading cash margins and low carbon intensity that is expected to deliver production growth into the next decade. And also Hesse's banking assets add another leading U.S. shale position to Chevron's DJ and Permian Basin operations and further strengthen domestic energy security. So this is on the heels of last week when ExxonMobil announced their big um, deal. So, you know, you've got Chevron um, announcing this deal. It's expected to close in the first half of next year. Um, it's been unanimously approved by both companies' board of directors. We'll have to wait and see if there's any antitrust issues. I haven't heard anything about that Um And also the deal will have to meet approval from HESS shareholders. Um, So we'll watch what the regulators say and what the shareholders say. Uh, But again, just a massive deal. You're seeing some interesting consolidation in the energy sector. Um, so we'll continue to, to follow that for you. Not so good news. Interest rates are continuing to climb just as the Christmas shopping season is approaching. Um, what I saw this week on retail credit card rates was very, very scary. I wanted to share it with you. The average retail credit card annual percentage rate hit a new record high, of 28.93% this year. So that was up even higher from where it was last year. And that was according to a piece I saw from Bank Rates annual retail card study that came out at the beginning of the week. Um, But you look at some of these, I mean, that 28.93% APR is well above the national average, which clocks in already bad at 20.71%. The highest retail credit card, 33.24% on a retailer called Academy Sports and Outdoors, their credit card. Um, So, you know, You've got 16 credit cards that charge uh, over 32% to all cardholders who carry balances. This is from big-name retailers like Jared, K Jewelers, Zales, Signet Jewelers, QVC, Victoria Secrets, Wayfair. So people who have those specific retail credit cards and that are carrying balances are being charged over 32%. So I can't imagine because, um, and I get it, I understand a lot of people are enticed because retailers will come out and say, hey, we're going to offer you point programs, we're going to give you other perks, um, whatever it might be, which is fine, but if you can't pay off that store credit card, um, you're going to be charged over 30%, uh, you know, actually thirty-two over 32% in interest. Um, so that's just scary. And people tend to get into credit card debt for, you know, good reasons. Like I said, oh, okay, we'll get some cash back. We'll get some points. We'll get something positive with an airline ticket, whatever it might be. And if, if that works out, okay, that's fantastic. But if not, you know, it's easy to get into Um, those credit cards. But if you have that credit card debt, obviously, at over 32 percent or even over 20 percent, the national average, you have some serious problems. And it's very, very hard to to get out of that, of course. So scary. But I wanted to share it with you, you know, for all of us ourselves. I think it's a very important um, item and piece of education to share with our children and grandchildren as well, because, you know, they start getting hammered, even sometimes before college and um, about getting these credit cards. And if they don't have the discipline to pay those credit cards off, not only is it uh, very, very stressful on them uh, for trying to get that money to pay off, but also you could be talking about impacting credit scores and and other things, Um, uh, an application down the road, whatever it may be. So that's why I wanted to share that with you, because with these rates in particular, I mean, it's the, the credit card rates generally are obscene, but now um, they're beyond that. Um, and another example of what's going on that I saw this week because of these high interest rates, because of high inflation um, and, and just all of the other pressures that people have, there's a growing number of Americans that are falling behind on their car payments. So you've got these high automobile prices uh, people are again strained as far as their budgets go because of inflation and that's leading to repossessions. They've uh, they've ticked higher uh, because of those reasons um, and also because used and new cars that their pricing is up so much uh, sky high actually that it's forcing people to take out bigger loans, and you take out bigger loans, and then you look at the higher interest rates, and it's just a really bad mixture. So in September, the percentage of auto borrowers who were at least 60 days late on their bills rose to 6.11 percent, according to Fitch. So that's the highest default level in nearly three decades, and um, defaults are up over 31, actually almost 32% from just a year ago. So just that inflationary pressure, just over the 12 months, inflation on top of inflation um, has really taken its toll when you look at automobile loan defaults. Um, So you're looking, so last year, according to one survey I saw, there was about 1.5 million vehicles that were seized. Um, or excuse me, that's what's expected this year, $1.5 million. Um Last year, it was $1.2 million. So you're talking about a, a big increase in car repossessions, car and truck. What is the problem? Again, it comes back to, I saw the average cost, average cost of a new car is around $48,000. That's near a record high. Um, also, you put on top of that, the average new auto loan rate, jumped to 7.4% in September and used auto loan rates, the average, 11.4%. So you're paying higher prices for the vehicles, plus you're getting hammered with the higher interest rate. It's no surprise to see that those repossessions are headed higher. Um, Sticking in that area of automobiles, the United Auto Workers strike against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Uh, has now cost the U.S. economy about $9 billion, a little over, actually, which is more than twice the previous record for an auto industry strike this century. So the latest data, uh, uh, it came from a uh, consulting company called Anderson Economic Group, and they showed that the union strike against Detroit's Big Three Cost the auto industry alone some nine point three billion dollars as of I think it was October the uh, the nineteenth. Um, so we're you know five or six weeks into this now, and it's really taking its toll. Um, as far as the breakdown, it's cost the strike has cost workers about four hundred eighty eight million dollars in lost wages. The automakers have collectively lost four almost four point two billion dollars dealers and customers are out a combined 1.8 billion dollars and suppliers have now taken more than a 2.7 billion dollar hit so um, th- this is unfortunate I always go back to now using the uh, uh, fairly fresh example of Bud light when uh, they were just um, just drove into the ground like a tomato steak because of just stupid, um uh, marketing and advertising. Well, you know, if people don't want to drink Bud Light, which they don't, which is fine, then they don't do that. Right. But you look downstream, all those innocent workers and businesses that were impacted. And I think we're seeing the same thing here with this UAW strike downstream, downline supply chain, um, all of the people that are the backbone, they didn't have any say in this strike or in the negotiations, and they've just been hammered to the tune of $2.78 billion, and that's extremely unfortunate because they're just caught in the middle of this shuttle being smacked back and forth, and like I said, they have no uh, no say in it. So uh, some good news this week was um, was taking place with some UAW negotiations and um, you know, accepting some terms and hopefully you're going to see uh, ratification across the board, but we're just not there yet. And, and by the way, General Motors alone, just General Motors said that they had lost $800 million in operating profits and um, it's costing them about $200 million a week going forward. So uh, this is not good for, you know, again, for all the people involved and uh, hopefully they'll be able to come to some fair agreement. Um, unfortunately, um, Fain, the guy that represents UAW, he's a such a hypocrite because this is a guy that runs around with the, you know, his fists in the air like he's some dude about solidarity, and he had a T-shirt on that said "Eat the Rich" and runs his mouth about you know the higher. Uh, paid individuals and the top earners and all that. This guy's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, right? That we know about. So it comes back to, you know, and I saw a picture of him and Bernie Sanders side by side with Bernie Sanders, the big socialist. Um, but when he made $5 million or whatever it was on his book sales, he got defensive, right? I mean, what he should have done just like Fain is donate 80 or 90 percent of their uh, income to uh, whatever the UAW or the United uh, States Socialist Organization or, you know, People for Communism or the New Marxist Foundation or whatever. That's what they should do. But they don't. They're massive hypocrites who lie to everybody right to their faces um, and cash the checks and go to the fancy parties and kick it on the big fancy, you know, boats and fly private and all the other stuff. Um, so many of these guys are, are hypocrites, whether it's on that lower level or on the higher level, like the John Carries and the Bill Gates and Zuckerberg and all these other ones who, you know, are lying to everybody about climate change and health and all this other stuff. Um, and fortunately, they're starting to get caught and the lights really being shown on them bright and that's a very, very good thing. Um, and I'll just stick, I'll finish with this as far as top stories for the, um, the the auto industry. A lot of the things that I've been talking about, high interest rate, high uh, just costs of, um, of vehicles and all the other stuff, that prompted um, a, a big divorce this week. And it was Honda and General Motors announced they were ending a $5 billion plan to develop lower cost electric vehicles together. This is just a year after they announced the effort. It's already blown up. And I've been saying this from the beginning and I'll keep saying it. You can't tell people what to drive. You can't. I mean, you can try, but they're not going to listen. If they want a Tesla or any of these other electric vehicles, like I have always said, knock yourself out join the car club, go cross-country, make sure you map out your charging stations. That didn't go so well for the uh, the Secretary of uh, Energy. But anyway, you can do that. But to tell all of us what to drive by a certain year, go pound sand. We're not listening to you. And you say that you're going to, what, be carbon neutral and you're going to reduce um temperature by a half of a percent prove it this is all blowing up in your face and i understand it's a money laundering operation i mean i get it it's massive paybacks it's uh you know giving money to people so that it'll come back to the politicians um and you know and and all the parasites that um are under the boat that just they're along for the ride in dc and in these industries You're just a bunch of hypocrites. You're trying to make yourself feel important. You're basically stealing money. We're not stealing because it's legal. You know, if you're operating within the the unfortunate um, administration policy, then that's fine. But I don't know how you sleep at night. And like I said, keep one eye open and just remember this. We're not going to listen to you when you try to tell us what to drive. We're just not going to do it. So, like I said, you can go pound sand and you can try to make yourself sound like, you know, you're doing a great thing and your kid's going to be the next Greta Thunberg or whatever, whatever her name is. But, you know, just, um, you know, take a hike, man. When you look at economic data of this past week, um, it was mixed. Uh, And I'd have to be honest with you. Some of the headlines were a little misleading. Um, so that's something to always take into consideration. One thing we saw, you know, every Wednesday morning, we get information about the previous week's mortgage applications. And it was unfortunately not a big surprise to see that the 30 year fixed rates, um, you know, they jumped to the highest, that interest rate jumped to the highest we've seen since the year 2000. This was according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. Um, loan applic- loan applic- application dropped um, not only for the week, but, you know, when you look year over year, they were down. And it's not just new homes. It's the refinancing index. It was down 2% for the week, 8% from the same time a year ago. The average interest rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage uh, was 7.9%. So it's it's all of these high interest rates, which was just an epic failure of the Federal Reserve and of Biden and Pelosi and all the Republicans that voted for the spending packages. The bogus infrastructure, you name it. All of that spending, along with the Federal Reserves, just, I mean, they're just, you know, they shouldn't be in charge and and have this much say over um, our economy. But it's just been a disaster. So those high interest rates are taking their toll. You know, I, I mentioned about some of the headline stuff. Hey, durable goods orders... You know, those are for things that are built to last supposedly three years or longer. You know, it's interesting. That's not the case uh, often these days. Um, We had a repair on our hot water heater uh, a couple days ago. And our friend um, who's a plumber who was um, doing the work was saying, I'm like, wow, we just put this in this particular unit, you know, two years ago in 2021. And he was telling me nowadays Most of the stuff's only warranted for, you know, whatever, a year, and then there's a three or he may have said five year, I forget, warranty on some of the other uh, parts of it. So things just really aren't built to last like they used to be. I mean, he was, it was interesting because he shared with me, he's been a professional in that space for a long time, uh, him and his dad. And, you know, he he was saying that they actually wonder if uh, these companies often don't test things to see when they'll break and to make sure it's not too far out so that you have to buy uh, replacement parts and and things of that nature. And that's just sickening to think that, um, you know, there are companies out there that are doing that. But the durable goods order, uh, that number for September came in at 4.7%. That's the headline number. Everybody was like when they first saw it come across the terminal. It was like, man, that's fantastic. That's a really good number. Well, when you strip out, a Boeing, by the way, had a big batch of contracts, um, so that was a huge component. And then cars, um, that was a, a fairly large component. So if you take out take out airplanes and cars, durable goods orders for September weren't up 4.7 percent they were up 0.5 percent that's not even what economists were looking for so you know again i think we have to be careful about what the headline tells us always be careful about what uh the politicians and the talking heads and the people on TV whose job it is, it seems these days to keep you scared to death. So um, you'll stick around after the commercial. Um, Also, here's another one that got me. Third quarter GDP number. We got the first reading for that. 4.9 percent. That was up from the last quarter. That was better than expectations. Um, So, you know, it was when you first saw it, Again, come across your your monitor across the terminal. It's like, man, that's pretty good. Then you look and see, well, wait a minute. Federal, state, and local government spending, that's taxpayer spending, that's your money, uh, also drove that number higher. Federal spending soared to 6.2%. You saw national defense spending spike 8%, to 8%. Um, and state and local spending surged 3.7%. That's not what we want. Not in my mind. I don't want the government driving the economy. I want less government. Right? I mean, what is it? One in five jobs that have been created lately are government jobs. That's not good for the country. Government spending, which is taxpayer, that's your money. There is no government spending. It's your money. Whether they're spending what they take in, Or they're borrowing money, um, which is, of course, why we're so upside down right now, $33.6 trillion in debt. And last year, the last fiscal year for uh, the country, basically a $2 trillion deficit when you factor in the shell game with student loans. So, um, you know, we just, i tell you, man, we really, really have to be careful Um, and a massive change is needed. And guess what? You know, I've been talking, and I don't care if they shut the government down in November. I could care less. Um, And they act like the world's going to end, and we know it won't. I mean, look, we just had three weeks of uh, Congress in limbo in many aspects. So what? But the right thing happened, right? We have a new speaker. Um, Personally, I I had to research him because I don't know Johnson that well. But um, a couple things you know, raised my antenna on spending. Now I look at how they vote because they'll get on and tell you whatever they want to tell you and make you feel good and fool you. But it always comes back to the vote. Not what I say, what do I do? And, um, there's a couple, it was a little worrisome when it came to spending, he went along with it. Uh, now I really believe because he's going to be so polarized um, that he's going to have to be more stringent on the spending. And the other good thing is he's going to be driving the train. So he'll have that opportunity to explain uh, what they're bringing forward and, um, and, of course, then what the votes are. I'll go back to the beginning of this, Congress, uh, real quick before the break. Um, back in January, very simple. The United States Congress, the House, needs to close the border immediately, and they need to cut spending immediately. That's it. Then we can go from there. But that's exactly what I said back in the middle of January and before, and I'll stick with it now with this Congress. Close the border, stop spending, and then we'll go forward from there. And spending is a perfect example because now they're going to be talking about a continuing resolution. Um, They're going to try to, like Biden's trying to do, smush everything together like they always do in the dark of the night with Israel, Ukraine and all the other stuff bundled. We don't want bundled. We want to debate everything individually so we can hear the debate, get the facts and vote. God gave me fields of gold and trees you how to climb running rivers just like stallions let loose through the countryside
0: It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD
1: you got nothing better to do than throw rocks at things that shine.
0: Well, you ought to be chasing your own dreams instead of shooting holes
1: in mine. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to Apple Podcasts and you can uh, grab it there. Thanks so, so much for being with us. Hope your weekend's going well. We're really looking forward to um, our conversation this morning. A friend of the program's been on a few times before, Mr. Desmond Lockman. Um, He is with the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Prior to that, he was an economic strategist, uh, market strategist. Uh, at Solomon Smith Barney, uh, he worked at the International Monetary Fund, he has uh, taught at Georgetown University, Johns Hopkins University, and uh, he himself um, uh, is, is uh, very uh, a- advanced in educational degrees, getting his PhD in economics from Cambridge, among others. So uh, really glad to have Mr. Lockman back on the program. Mr. Lockman, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us, appreciate it. My pleasure. Good speak back again, <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you. So, you know, I was uh, mentioning earlier on the program um, about how I receive uh, emails uh, throughout the week uh, with your uh, writings and and have the privilege of reading them. Which, by the way, uh, folks, you can get those too um, if you uh, go to American Enterprise Institute uh, to their website. Uh, a e i alpha echo india dot you can sign up for their free emails uh, as well as just enjoy uh, all of the free and in-depth uh, content that's on the website so mr lockman one of the things that really caught my attention this week was uh, a piece you did i think it was published in the hill Um, a troubled world economy points to global catastrophe. (laughs) So, you know, those kind of things grab your attention and I think warrant a little more discussion. Uh, If you would, just give us uh, your take on the current landscape uh, as far as geopolitics and um, and, and domestic politics and how it's impacting our financial world.
0: Right. I I should apologize for that title. Uh, You know, that wasn't my choice that was the hill's choice uh catastrophe might be too strong a word but certainly it's not going to be pretty it's going to be rather troubled Uh, and it's not simply the geopolitical situation you know we've now got this israel hamas standoff you know that could spread to the rest of the region if that's the case you know you'd get oil prices spiking Uh, and that would not be good for the global economy. It would send petrol prices higher, inflation would go higher, the central banks wouldn't be able to reduce interest rates, so that would certainly tip us into recession. But leaving aside that, uh, what my concern is, is that we've got trouble in three major parts of the global economy at the same time. So we've got problems in the United States Uh, which I'll get to, Uh, and we've got problems in China. You know, that's the second largest economy. They're in the middle of a property and credit market bust. You know, that's a big event in the global economy. It means that they're going to a very much slower growth path. They're going to have a lost decade like Japan. So that's not good for the global economy. And we've got Germany, you know, which is the largest country in Europe, that's already gone in recession. You know, they having to deal with an energy shock from Russia. So what we've got is a situation where we've got trouble in th- three of major parts of the global economy at the same time. And we've got geopolitical risk. So that leads me to think that we would uh, go into recession early next year. Now, just a word on the United States. You know, what we've seen lately is we've seen the 10-year bond rate, 10-year uh, on the treasury bonds spike, you know, that people are now being very, very concerned about the very bad state of the country's public finances. We're running an 8% of GDP budget deficit, you know, at the very time that the economy is got very low unemployment, you know, that's something we should have a load deficit when the economy is strong but we've got a high deficit so what the markets are doing is they're just not wanting to buy u.s treasury bonds because they don't think that the treasury is going to be able to finance itself so they send interest rates up from four percent to five percent what that does is it sends the mortgage interest rates up so we've now got mortgage rates at eight percent so people can't afford to buy houses similar kind of interest rate for automobile loans. They can't buy autos. And what the high interest rate also does is it creates problems in the banking system. You know, like we saw at the start of the year, Silicon Valley Bank and First National Bank, you know, the second and third largest bank failures in United States history. They failed because what happened is when the interest rates rise... Bond prices fall, and these banks hold a huge amount of uh, bonds, so they make big losses. And then the depositors get worried that uh, they're not going to get their money back. So money leaves the banks, and that causes all sort of stress. And just the last thing I'd say, um, you know, which is really a big deal, and I don't think it's getting enough attention, is we've got serious problems in with. Office space, you know, real <laughs> commercial real estate. That what's occurred after COVID is people aren't going back to the offices in the way in which they did before. So these property developers have got a huge amount of uh, vacancies. Uh, you know, that it's said that in New York, uh, the vacancies, the vacant office space, is equivalent to twenty-four Empire State buildings. So, they're going to have trouble repaying their loans next year, and that could cause additional stress in the financial system. So, when I put it all together, uh, I don't see how we avoid a recession uh, next year. You know, whether that's a catastrophe, that's another matter, but it's certainly not going to be uh, a pleasant outlook.
1: Yeah, no, and um, and I appreciate uh, your oversight and also um, explaining to our listeners about how the Hill chose that, uh, you know, that headline for you. That's a shame because it's all of your work after that. So uh, I would have thought they would have ran that up the flagpole with you. But, you know, kind of going back to some of the things that you said, one, if you would, you know, we always and, and I, you know, I do daily business updates uh, on the radio. And, of course, we always talk about the equity markets, about what the Dow and the S&P and the NASDAQ did, um, you were referencing the bond market with the 10-year Treasury, etc. Um, that's really what everybody's lives revolves around, is the bond market because of the interest rate policy and all of the other uh, the minutiae that goes along with that. So if you can expand a little bit on how important the bond market is and maybe why people you know, should be a little concerned or even more than a little about what's going on in the bond market.
0: Yeah, well, basically, the treasury bond market, that is the bellwether for interest rates all around the world. So other interest rates get set off the treasury rate. So if that interest rate goes up, What it does is it takes other interest rates up so that's why one's got to be concerned so if just as an example what occurred over the last two or three months is the treasury bond rate the 10-year yield on treasury bonds went up from four percent to five percent what you saw immediately is that the mortgage rate, which was at 7%, went to 8%. You know, so it took the interest rate up. The same thing you know, across the rest of the world is it drove interest rates up the rest of the world. So when the bond market is doing badly, in other words, interest rates going up and the bond prices going down, that has an effect on interest rates around the world, and that impacts... Uh, economic activity so if we take for example the mortgage rate uh somebody who could say have bought a house worth three hundred thousand dollars at seven percent you know he could finance himself probably at uh at eight percent he's only going to be able to buy a house of something like two hundred and forty thousand so it means there's reduced demand for housing And that has an impact on the economy. So that's the one way that the interest rate is important. Another way, you know, just from the stock market investor is if you can get a government yield of uh, 5% instead of 4%, well, you're going to be more inclined. The average investor is going to be more inclined to want more of his money in the bond market and less of his money in the stock market. So, that's the reason why, you know, when you're seeing the equity, uh, uh, when you're seeing the um, bond prices fall, in other words, the interest rates on treasury bonds going up, you see that that has a negative impact on the stock market as well. So this is a pretty key. Uh, uh, this is a pretty key economic measure that if. You see long bond rates going up. That's not good news for the economy. It's not good news for the stock market.
1: Yeah, and, and also I know you touched on what happened back in the spring, you know, back in March with uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and um, and First Republic and Signature and, and others that, um, you know, basically uh, they were uh, caught with a lot of government securities on their balance sheet that had lost value and that was really uh, one of the precursors to driving them into failure, right?
0: Correct, well, my concern is that even before the spike, later spike in treasury bond rates, it was estimated that the U.S. banking system had $620 billion in what's called mark-to-market losses on their bond portfolio. In other words, if they had to sell their bonds, they would be losing something like $600 billion. So that means that their balance sheets aren't strong. The interest rates have gone up, the bond prices have gone further down over the past uh, uh, couple of months. So it means that the losses, the unrealized losses that they're holding on their balance sheets are way north of $600 billion. On top of that, What we know is next year, in the real commercial estate, those property developers have to roll over $500 billion of loans at high interest rates, yet they're not earning much money because the vacancy rates are so high, the occupancy rates are so low, means they're not getting the revenue that they could get, so it means that they're gonna be defaulting on their loans. And that is a serious problem for the regional banks, which hold like 18% of their balance sheet is real commercial property loans. So they're going to get hit by high treasury rates, which are reducing their government bond portfolios, and then they're going to get hit by real commercial uh, uh, property. You know, Those loans are going to go south. And when that happens, what occurs is that the banks become less willing to lend so in addition to having high interest rates you've got banks don't want to lend credit and it means all these uh, middle-sized businesses that rely on the regional banks they're not going to have credit so their activity slows so you know when you put it all together as i said it's difficult to see how we escape a recession
1: yeah, no, I, I understand your argument uh, wholeheartedly. It, it makes a lot of sense the way you lay it out. So I want to um, uh, skip over to another article you wrote um, that is titled, The Federal Reserve is Asleep at the Wheel, uh, your op-ed you did for the national interest, uh, another really good piece. And by the way, folks, <clears throat> excuse me, we're talking this morning uh, with Mr. Desmond Lockman uh, from the uh, uh, American Enterprise Institute. You can go to Aei. Dot org that's alpha echo india and uh, sign up for the same uh, you know emails uh, that I get every week and uh, follow Mr. Lachman and others um, with uh, just a really good work that many of them do at um, uh, AEI so uh, but anyway you did the, that op-ed the Federal Reserve is asleep at the wheel this really ties in uh, quite nicely with, um, you know, the interest rate uh, uh, conversation that we've been having so far. What do you think the Fed's role is in all of this?
0: Yeah, well, what the Fed should be doing is it should be anticipating that we can have real financial system stress. And they didn't do that in 2007. You know, when we had the bursting of the housing bubble, they got caught asleep then, you know, that they were talking about wanting to raise interest rates when the right thing was to be reducing interest rates. And my feeling is that they're making a similar mistake now. They've jacked interest rates up by 525 basis points in a very short space of time. And the financial market stress that is about to hit us, that seems to me to be in plain sight. So the Fed should be anticipating that. Instead of which, what the Fed is doing is they're focusing on the data. Uh, they're behaving like a hedge fund. They're looking at each print of the data, you know, and that is influencing their policy. And they're forgetting that monetary policy. What it does is it operates with a long lag. So when you raise interest rates at the Federal Reserve, you shouldn't expect the impact on the economy to be instantaneous. So what my view is that the five full percentage points that they've raised interest rates that is still going to have its impact on the economy going forward so we're going to see weakness going forward so the fed shouldn't be talking as they are right now about we need high interest rates for longer to slay this inflationary beast you know that that is not going to be the problem. The problem is going to be that we're going to get a financial system accident. We're going to have a recession. The Fed should be pausing now to see what the impact of its policies are and not being talking up uh, the markets. Something else that the Fed is doing is we've got a bond market that is in real trouble because – The government is issuing too much debt. There aren't buyers on the debt. But the Fed, as part of its policy of monetary policy tightening, what they're doing is they're basically not rolling over something like $50 billion of treasuries each month. So what they're doing is they're adding to supply. You know, what we don't want to see is we don't want to see these long-term interest rates keep going up because that's really just going to crush the economy and it's going to cause problems in the banking sector. So I believe that this Fed has done a really bad job I and mean, they were fast asleep on the wheel on the inflation side. They allowed the money supply to increase by 40% between the beginning of 2020 and the end of 2021. And then they get surprised that we get a lot of inflation. Now, what they're doing is by their policy actions, they're allowing the money supply to contract. At a rate that it hasn't contracted in the last 60 years, and they're going to be surprised when we get a recession. Yep. So, I, I would give the Fed uh, at best uh, a C, but I'd be doing that if I'm grading them on a curve.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that's kind, um, and I, uh, you know, again, I, I really appreciate you pointing out, you know, in that uh, article I mentioned, um, you know, just how, in fact, they've been negligent, in my opinion. I mean, I, I've I, here's my thing. I've said it for years, uh, but especially the last couple years. If you have a target, an inflation target of two, and you get to three or three and a quarter or three and a half, I can find a solid third grader. Who, if I literally put it like, look, this is our target. Here's where we are. Do you think we need to do something, just a little something to start to throw a blanket over this, you know, this increase? I guarantee I could have a third grader figure it out as opposed to it getting up to six, seven, eight, nine percent. And these people that supposedly are intelligent and and very educated using the word transitory. It's ridiculous. Right.
0: Right. no, no, I, I agree with you. you know I think the Fed made a huge error on that side. They made a huge error with the housing market bubble in 2008, 2009 giving us the worst recession that we had in the post-war period. And I'm afraid that they're making a, another mistake uh, right now by being too hawkish. You know it was fine for them to be hawkish at the beginning. but after you've raised interest rates at a pace that we haven't seen before, uh, you know for them to still be on a very hawkish tone um, I think that when we have a, another conversation in six or nine months time uh, it'll be seen to be as very ill-advised
1: sort of policy. I totally agree with you, because as you pointed out, and I've always said, I don't, this isn't exact science, but I always understood that any type of increase or decrease that the Fed would have would take roughly six to nine months to truly and fully work its way through our system here and abroad. So you know, like uh, like you were pointing out, just they were so aggressive, and um, and I definitely think they overshot the mark. Our guest today, a uh, friend of the program, Mr. Desmond Lockman, um, and he is um, uh, at the American uh, Enterprise Institute. That's where you can find all of his great work. We just talked about two of the pieces, uh, but there's even been more than he's put out uh, since um, I I uh, printed off those two. So, Mr. Lockman, Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. It was great talking to you again. And as you just alluded to, I look forward to, you know, six, nine months or so from now, uh, getting back with you and seeing, you know, what proved to be correct. And again, what else is on the horizon?
0: terrific good to talk
1: to you yes sir enjoy the rest of your weekend and thank you again i appreciate it because i know you're very busy and uh also thank you for uh that work that you do so that does it for us we're out of time folks up against a hard break and um Um, I will talk with you on the Morning News Express with uh, Bob and Chris, um, and uh, we do those live uh, uh, updates at 5.50 a.m., 6.50 a.m., and 7.50 a.m., and uh, then we'll be back here next weekend for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program. So uh, have a great rest of your weekend. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. Fall in the air We've been waiting on it all damn here. Drag out a car
0: hard and a chair Let's build a fire Shoulder pads cracking on a high school field Opening days on our heels God, I love how Friday night feels Let's build a fire Let's build a
1: fire Let's crank it on up Pour a little diesel in my cup And toss it on, you better back up Let's build a fire Past editions of this program are available in the Audio Vault at WFMD.com.